You've got to always keep in mind that there's two ways to develop an organization or an organism. Or I should say there's two ways to develop a, a, a body of people. You can develop them as an organization, or you can develop them as an organism. And, and the, the organization is not always bad unless it's the church, the body of Christ. Then when organization becomes too structured, the life that makes it a living organism is pushed out and replaced by the system. Uh, it has been truly said by several evangelists and teachers that most churches or many churches in America could be run without the presence of the Holy Spirit at all because the organization is so tight. But as a result of that kind of teaching, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with the spirit of what they were saying, but as a result of that kind of teaching, the charismatic said, hot diggity dog, we don't have to do nothing organized. We don't have to be on time for anything. We don't have to be committed to anything. We don't have to keep our word. And some of them even thought we don't have to pay our bills. And as a result, we brought reproach on the body of Christ. But even, uh, even alongside that, what else we've done is we have greatly short-circuited the flow of life. Everybody says, God says we're supposed to have life and have it more abundantly. And I don't see any abundant life. And this is not the only reason you don't see abundant life. But corporately, one of the reasons you don't see abundant life is the flow of that power gets short-circuited when we aren't in right relationship throughout the body. Just like electricity can be short-circuited if the wiring has, for some reason, been disconnected at a point where it should be connected. Or it's been connected wrongly. But uh, what I'm saying is, for the flow of anointing to come in the church so that spiritual warfare can be carried out correctly, you've got to be rightly related to one another in your attitudes. Jesus said, when you come even to bring an offering to the altar, you make sure you're right with your brother before you do it. And uh, tonight, what I want to deal with, if you want a title for this, we're going to talk about the longing in our hearts for order. How many of you long for order in your life? You want order. You want to be able to do what you've been given to do and do it to the fullest of your ability. And, and, and I don't mean in the flesh, but to the fullness of the anointing that God has given you. Uh, and uh, I don't want you to get under all a bunch of condemnation tonight, ladies. If you've got diapers piled up to your ears and the house is a mess and you got to church barely on time and by the skin of your teeth and you're barely uh, recovering now from from uh, a normal Sunday and your house isn't clean. I mean, look, don't get under that. When I talk about order, we're talking about everything from keeping our closet clean to keeping our bills paid to keeping our spiritual life in order. But let's, let's don't get under it. I mean, if you lay down under the garbage that you're trying to get in order, you just become part of the garbage pile. So don't lay down under it and get under a bunch of junk. Let's just let's deal with it. Now, I don't think we can become orderly in our natural lives until we learn that the spirit of order is the spirit of God. You know, I can remember my mother walking in and looking around with a scowl on her face. And then she would look at me and she'd look at my brothers and she'd say something to this effect. It would change from week to week. But it usually went something like, how does a human being live in this? 
you are a human being. I know, she would say. I know you are. I, I was there. But somehow from, from there to here, a great devolution has taken place. And I used to, I can remember, see, I can remember sitting there looking at her saying, I don't understand. What difference does, why make up a bed you've got to get in again the next night? And we would, we would go through this. Of course, we didn't talk about it very much after that. We just, we'd go, we'd go, we'd clean it up, but, because the principle was not in my heart, it only maintained a semblance of order till the next evening. And uh, as I've gotten older, and I've begun to... That sounds terrible. As I've gotten older, it almost sounds like, you know, you've got to get older to, to begin to care about things like that. But it's, yet it seems like you do. You begin to, to realize that order is a, is a manifestation of the character of God, folks. I mean, aren't you glad that the moon is not sometimes in your backyard? Aren't you happy that gravity is trustworthy? Aren't you glad that God was, was uh, consistent? You know, that electricity does follow certain laws? Aren't you glad of that? Well... We, we started off this subject in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we started, you know, I've quoted it to you every week. You should know it backwards, forwards, and sideways by now. I preached on it again this morning in the youth group. That uh, the Word says that the Spirit speaks expressly that in the last days, dangerous times are going to come because men will become lovers of, the, of their own selves and boasters and proud and lists all these terrible things they'll become. And among that list, it says they'll be disorderly. It means every concept of organization or uh, 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 protocol or every sense of right placement of things will begin to be thrown out of kilter. And then Jesus, coupling that with, with Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13, which we've already quoted over and over, Jesus said that the, in the last days because uh, lawlessness, iniquity, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. The word lawlessness in that text, it literally means without any sense of order. In other words, uh, why should I wait until marriage for sexual union? Why should I pay for that? I mean, the government gets theirs. Why shouldn't I do it my way? Why should I stay inside these boundaries? There just begins to be a, a whole overall attitude of, of uh, doing things that seem right in your own eyes. Jesus said during that same chapter, it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And I used to read that and I thought, well, everybody eats and everybody drinks and most people marry and give in marriage. What's wrong with that? And what he was saying was, they have done it completely out of order. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, their, their appetites are completely out of control. Uh, everything is done for the moment. There's no sense of building or structure or order. And uh, the power of darkness that set that in motion has been working ever since the, the dawn of time to unravel godly order 
and then reconstitute bondage in the place of it. And what I want to say to you tonight, I really hope you're listening to me tonight. Because what I want to say to you tonight, folks, is wherever there is not order, there is bondage. Whatever in our lives is not in godly order is in demonic bondage. Now, I don't mean by that you're demon-possessed. But the power of darkness can have his fingerprints on things in your life and begin to draw you into a deeper and deeper clutch of his if we don't bring these things into order. Uh, Look at Ezekiel chapter 28 just real quick. I want you to understand the root of disorderliness. Now this, boy, here I go again, walking on a tightrope. There is such a, a fine balance line between sloppiness and this old religious legalism that says, you know, uh, you got to dress a certain way to please God. And I, only the Holy Spirit can, can keep that balance, okay? I've been in some groups where uh, if you didn't wear a tie, you know, you, God couldn't use you if you didn't wear a tie. And then I've been in other groups where if you did wear a tie, you were the Antichrist, you know, the establishment. Uh, see, those things, whenever you begin to make doctrines out of them, they become bondages. But uh, that's not what I'm trying to communicate to you tonight. If I say something about dressing right or, or something, like, I'm not talking about wearing some three-piece suit or not wearing a three-piece suit or having short hair or not having short hair. That's not the subject. So don't let your mind wander off on those silly issues. When I'm talking about divine order, I'm talking about letting God put your life in position so that his power can begin to flow through it to minister through you and to you and into the, to the people around you. And the power of darkness is the source of that sloppy, devil-may-care, I-don't-give-a-rip attitude that has been the norm in America for the past 15 to 20 years. It almost destroyed our country in the 60s. And then in the 70s, we kind of galvanized it and cut its hair and put a little chain around its neck and put it in discos, but it's the same attitude. So I I don't want you guys, anybody here tonight, thinking that, that I'm talking about how we dress. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our attitude of our life. Now, those attitudes can bleed through into how we present ourselves and, and how, we, how, we, you know, how we operate in our natural lives, but that's not what I want to focus on tonight. I want you to, I want you to get a picture. Do you just kind of go through the day just getting from moment to moment without any, without any semblance of order? Or are you letting the Holy Spirit give you direction? Say, well, the Holy Spirit never talks to me about moment by moment. What? Not if you don't ever listen. If all we're ever thinking about is just getting through the day. i got to get through another day. That's not abundant life, folks. Say, well, okay, get, get, get God to give me a better job and get me out of where I'm at, and then we can talk about abundant life. No, that's not where abundant life starts. Uh, I don't want to play a sad violin for me, but I do want you to know... I traveled uh, for, for 10, 11 years by myself a lot. And I can remember getting in the car, getting behind the steering wheel, and gritting my teeth and blinking back tears at the thought of having to drive 8, 10, 15 hours that day alone. 
to go to one more meeting to preach to one more group of people who may or may not hear anything I say, I began to feel like a hireling. I began to feel like a spiritual prostitute who went and did my thing to please the church and then got paid for it. And I, I began to get angry at God. Is it, I mean, I'll never forget the day I was driving down the road complaining about it. And the Lord said, you know, the funniest part about this, son, is I didn't make out the schedule. You've gotten into the habit of doing this. And you never even consult with me anymore about whether this is what you're supposed to be doing or not. I, I may not be, I can't adequately describe to you what I was talking about, how I felt having to drive one more set of miles, go to one more set of meetings. Because, see, if the grass is always greener. And from where you're sitting, you might think, oh, that sounds really good. I'd like to do that. Well, maybe you would like to do it the first three or four years. But uh, every time you come home and you, your nephew has grown three feet and your niece doesn't remember who you are, you know, and I'm not blaming the Lord for that. I'm just saying there's a whole lot of circumstances that begin to come into these things that we don't pay attention to. <clears throat> and I have sat many times and wished I had an eight-to-five job so that I could be bored like some people say they're bored. See? And uh, the point is, that's not where your life is. You know how many times your circumstances have changed like you wanted them to, and yet you still wanted them to change again. How many times? Well, you can't count them. And that's why you, there have been so many times when driving down the road, I start feeling all that gunk and all those attitudes. And then I would set my will to do the will of God. And I begin to set my heart on the Lord. And His presence would begin to come. Not real big, but just a little bit. And slowly that anointing and that blessing would begin to increase. And His presence would begin to be in the car with me. And I'd begin to feel again the proper perspective of where life is. Life is not in what I do or where I am or who, I, who I'm with. It's in Him. And, and uh, it's at that time when, when I would be in His presence that life began to, I began to understand again what, what purpose there is in life. Uh, I'd get that frustration and I'd lose all perspective. I, I, I couldn't see, what's the use in uh, doing the projects that I had once been excited about? What's the use in... Uh, uh, looking forward to this or that conf conference or learning this or that scripture or, or developing some aspect of my life that had never been developed before. What's the use? Why even try? And then there would begin to creep in this complacent depression. And then you just lay down under it and just begin to wallow in it. And disorder. Sloppiness. An unwilling heart. An un, unmovable heart toward people and just kind of throw things around and, are you, is this getting through to you? Just kind of throw things around and leave everything in a mess and your, 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 your world around you, your world, your office, your room, your house, your yard, everything around you begins to reflect your attitude of life. Now, let me show you something about the source of disorder. In Ezekiel chapter 28, you know this scripture real well, beginning at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. The king of Tyrus here is the power of darkness, Satan himself. And say to him, thus saith the Lord God, you seal up the sum 
full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. The workmanship of your tablets and of your vocal cords were prepared in you in the day you were created. So this creature he's talking to was not somebody that was born, but somebody who was created. So we know we're talking about Lucifer before he fell. Now notice something here about his fall. It says, you were the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. And I set you in that position. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You used to walk up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Now, what is iniquity? You know, there's several different Bible words that we think of as the same thing. Trespasses, iniquity, sin. We think of all that as being the same thing. But a, a trespass is to, means literally to cross the line. It's like God draws the line and says, don't you go back past this point. But instead, we go over here and we cross the line. And when we cross the line on purpose, and be, for instance, God says, I don't want you to go to that store. There are things in that store you don't need to see. And we haven't yet really sinned yet until we decide to go cross the line and step over into the store. And then when we step over into the store, iniquity that is in us. What is iniquity? It's a lifestyle attitude of rebellion. When that iniquity starts rising up inside of us and we start feeling all these desires, we start getting into it. We have trespassed by going into the store, but we're actually in the bonds of iniquity when we get into the thing. You see what I'm saying? We think about all as being the same thing. And then we get in the store and say, God, I thought you said that you'd always make a way of escape. He, he did. It was, don't cross the line. See, now can't nothing get you out but the grace of God. Now, when it says that iniquity had been found in Lucifer, what it means is he had crossed some lines. His place was at the throne of God. That was his created divine orderly place. He got out of that place and... You won't notice this in the King James Version, but let me go on and finish reading this and go back and explain what it means. It says, By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness, and I will cast you to the ground and lay you before kings that they may behold you. You have defiled the sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquity and by the, by the iniquity of your traffic. Now, what in the world does all that mean? The word merchandise up in verse 16 and the word traffic down in verse 18 are very similar words. And I'm going to paraphrase these verses because what he's saying is this. The word merchandise and iniquity or the word merchandise and traffic here, literally means this. To take something and peddle it up and down 
and show it to people. That's what the two words mean. Trafficking and merchandise. And what it means is the Lucifer, standing in the throne of God, began to get dissatisfied with the setup. He began to think of himself as not getting the right, uh, uh, the right shake from God. He should have gotten more than he got. He began to be dissatisfied and disgruntled with where he was. Are you with me? Now, I'm not saying God puts you in an agonizing marriage. I'm not saying God puts you under a mean, cruel boss who treats you like you're just a, a, a less than an animal. I'm not saying that God made your children rebellious. You know that God didn't do that. But what I am saying is, God saved you where you are. And His purpose and desire and His heart for you is that you learn to overcome where you are. Say, so, well, what I'm going through is much worse than what somebody else is going through. He giveth more grace, the Word says. When the guy's going through something that you're not going through, he gets more grace. But God's desire is that whatever you're in, wherever you're at right now, you walk with him through it and then get out of it by walking out of it, not by being transported out of it. See? And I know some of you are thinking, but Clay, I am so tired of where I am. I know you're tired of it. But don't you want to change? Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to overcome? Don't you want to become like the Lord? Listen, God could zap you out of it, and it wouldn't be but a matter of weeks. Listen to this, please. It wouldn't be a matter of weeks until what is inside of you creates a carbon copy of where you are now. Did you hear what I said? What did I say creates a carbon copy of where you are now? What is inside of you? And so you're praying, God, deliver me from this. Please deliver me from this. Get me out of where I am. And the Lord's saying, okay, I will. You say, oh, well, I'm waiting. God says, I'm answering you. And nothing's changed. Oh, yeah, something's changing. You are. And the only way I can change you is leave you where you are. And as you learn to yield those things to me and submit to me, not submit to the circumstance, but submit to me in the circumstance and worship me and praise me in the midst of it. Don't praise me for it, but praise me in it. Then you begin to change. And then since your insides change, the forces in you that created the mess you're in can begin to change the circumstance around you. Marriage is the best example I can think of. How many times, y'all, do I have to have people come in who married three and four and five and six times? And every time it ended in a horrible tragedy, but it's always somebody else's fault. And I don't say that to, to condemn any of you. You know, I think you know by now my heart towards you, especially those of you who have been through the agony of a divorce. And I think you know that I am not speaking con in a condemnatory manner at all. But how many times do I have to have people come in and say, you know, if I could just get out of this one, I'll marry this one, and then everything will be okay. I'm so tired of hearing. How many times do you have to be deluded? How many times do you have to find the perfect one? 
And then when you marry them, they're no longer perfect because the bitterness in you that made your first marriage fall apart begins to eat away at the second one and you recreate your circumstances. Are you with me? Lord Jesus, help us hear this. Now, that's exactly how iniquity began. Lucifer got dissatisfied with the position, and I mean, look, his position was pretty nice. It was the throne of God. He got dissatisfied with it, and then he began to want to change it. And what he did was, it says he trafficked his iniquity. And from what we can tell from this passage, you know what it means? He went up and down among the angels telling them what he had discovered about himself. And he imparted that iniquity to them. That's why the book of Proverbs says of the seven things God hates, the one he hates the most is those who sow discord among the brethren. He hates that the most because it reminds, it reminds him of the fall of Lucifer. And it's inspired by the same one who, who did this rebellion, see? And so the whole attitude of submission is opposite of this attitude we see in Ezekiel 28. It is an attitude that says, Lord Jesus I trust you in the face of an empty, lonely problem that I'm in. I trust you in the midst of it. I don't know how it's going to work out. I can't see tomorrow, but I can see you. And I know somehow that through it, not only are you going to get me through it, but you're going to get it through me. And I'm going to, I'm going to no longer be an incubator to create this kind of thing. Uh, if you don't hear anything else I'm saying tonight, please hear this. Because we are creators, made in God's image and likeness, we are mostly responsible for our own atmosphere. We create it, folks. A cloud of darkness around us or a cloud of glory? It just depends on how we want to react to our situation. Now, he goes on to say, verse 17, this is an interesting verse. Proverbs, there's so many scriptures in Proverbs that deal with those who hate wisdom and what fools they are, but the only one I can think of right now is Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It says, a fool despises wisdom, but a wise man loves counsel and embraces it. Remember that? Well, there's a hundred verses like that in Proverbs. It's the whole subject of Proverbs. But I want to show you where I believe the greatest manifestation of iniquity was found in Lucifer, and I believe that it is the point at which God real uh, I don't want to say God realized, because God already knew. But this is the point at which God cut him off. It says in verse 17, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, and thou hast corrupted thy wisdom. But that's not a very good translation. You know what the actual Hebrew says in verse 17? You rebuked wisdom. You rebuked wisdom. What does that mean? It means that the Word of God came to Lucifer, and I believe that it was in the form of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit came to Lucifer and said, Look, Lucifer, look at what you're doing. Look at the ramifications of your wrong choice-making. Look at what's going to happen in the universe if you follow this path. And he said, get away from me, I don't want to hear it. He rebuked wisdom. 
Now, I don't for one minute propose that any of you in this room are Lucifer, okay? Yet at the same time, I do want to make a, a correlation between him and us that I think we have to face. The word Lucifer means light bearer. And Jesus said, we're the light of the world now. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you overcome. What did he say in Revelation chapter 3? He said, if you overcome, I will give you the morning star. You know what that means? I'm going to have to spend one whole night just on that one verse. It is so powerful. What it means is, to make a long story short, that whatever it was that Lucifer threw away, the church receives. I'll give you the morning star. I'll give you that place, that covering glorious place of worship before the throne. You'll walk before me in the stones of fire. And as you overcome, I will entrust into your hands all that Lucifer threw away. And more. And as Lucifer disrupted the power of the authority of the ranks of the angelic echelon, one-third, of course, this is up for uh, argument, but most Bible scholars believe that in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that one-third of the angels were cast down out of their position by the tail of the dragon, that that is a picture of the casting down of the angels who rebelled along with Lucifer. Whether that is true or not, we do know that hundreds and thousands and millions of angels did rebel with Lucifer. So what do we know? We know that by his iniquity, his dissatisfaction with his place, his unwillingness to yield to God and trust God for promotion, and his desire to create his own place by his own manipulations, and then his rebuking of wisdom when it did come, he created iniquity. And then he passed it on. He said, hey, look at here, i got a product that you can't refuse, man. And he just starts handing it out and passing it around and in fact, he did in Ezekiel 28 what his title became. He became known as the adversary, the deceiver, the serpent, the liar. He began to run up and down among the angels, whispering in their ear, God is not a good God. Hadn't changed a bit, has he? Still doing the same thing. Now... What he did was he totally disrupted the order of the angelic hosts of God and then all of a sudden he's got all these angels under his control and he's got to get them in divine order. So he starts, see, he's not a creator, he's a mimicker. And so he starts trying to set everything in order like God would do it. God has principalities and powers and thrones and dominions and mights and authorities. So Lucifer starts trying to set up dominions and mights and thrones and principalities and authority, and it doesn't work because, see, God rules his kingdom with love. And Lucifer said, I, of course he's not Lucifer anymore, he's Satan. And he says, I can't seem to get it working. So he does what every other organization does when it has no love in it. He begins to control and he began to dominate them with fear. See, I don't think that Lucifer, when he fell, immediately became this horrible, twisted serpent that we see him as now. There has been a devolution. You see him in the book of Genesis 
as the serpent. But then you see him in Job as this angel who slips in and accuses people before the throne of God. Then you get over into Zechariah and you see him as an accuser. Then you get over into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you see the filthiness of the demons. Then you get over into the Pauline letters and you see him as a dark spirit. Then you finally get to Revelation and you see him as a bloody dragon. And there's a continuous unfolding. I think this iniquity in him, he took his anointing and created iniquity with it and it's a creative force, but it's a creative force going down instead of up. And he's getting increasingly more wicked. That's why the idea of ultimate reconciliation of evil powers is so ridiculous. They are getting continuously more evil. And finally, when you get to Revelation, you see that the disorder in his life is so rampant that he comes down having great wrath and he just begins to tear up everything he can tear up. And that's what he did in Genesis 1. Tear up the earth. Tear up the world. No order. Don't let there ever be any order. If there's order, there's peace. And if there's peace, there's tranquility. And if there's tranquility, they'll they'll think. And if they'll think, they may create. And if they create, God might use them. Keep everything disorderly. Keep, keep, Keep their bank statements disorderly so that they can ever think in terms of God increasing them. Keep everything just barely fixed enough to get by. And then every now and then let it all break at once. Keep all their relationships surface. And then every now and then let somebody get their feelings hurt and then set off a chain reaction of hurt feelings so the whole family hates each other before the supper's over. Keep everything confused. Turn with me to James chapter 3 real quick. James chapter 3. Lucifer rebuked wisdom. Verse 13 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, that means you're not satisfied with your position and you're not satisfied with other people's position, you're constantly dissatisfied with the flow of your life. In other words, you're unthankful. Roman students, what do you remember about being unthankful? It's the number one evidence of a backslidden heart. No longer thankful. No sense of appreciation. So busy, angry because you can't afford pot roast that that you don't have any thankfulness for the beans. What you've been listening to is a message that I gave in 1984. It was a prophetic description of what happens to the entire structure of our lives, both private and public, when God's order of things is not only disregarded as it was beginning to be 40 years ago, but when it is totally rejected and replaced with a satanic disorder which is what we're now seeing. At this point in the recording, there began to be a sound problem that was not correctable on the original tape. But Mary and I believed that this message and the anointing on the message was important enough to present it again.
the remaining part of the message I will offer to you now with some additions uh, that will complete the original word and hopefully strengthen it for our present understanding. In the 1984 recording, we had just turned to James chapter 3, verse 13 and following. I had just tried to unpack the mysterious story of satanic rebellion in Ezekiel 28, where the highest being in creation, whom we tend to name Lucifer, the light bearer, becomes willfully dissatisfied with his place and begins to attempt to create his own structure. He seduces a contingency of lower spiritual beings to follow him in his alternate order, which becomes devilish disorder. The word confusion means to fuse together at cross-purposes, or to to confuse, to cross-connect, to incorrectly connect. Confusion means chaos. The ancient world saw the pre-ordered world of Genesis chapter 1 as one of terrifying chaos. This is why the sea and the waves roaring is something Jesus refers to in reference to the close of the age. Where the chaos of the ancient world from which God rescued the planet and brought order to the planet, uh, that chaos is seen to some somewhat return. God's word spoken into it begins to give it order in Genesis 1. And that order resulted in established, ongoing, abundant life. Included in that order was the creation of male and female. Well, the same confusion and chaotic spirit that set in motion the disruption of creation in heaven brought that chaos into Eden. And now we see how far his hatred of reality goes as he continues to disrupt the very meaning of what God had established. Males turn only to males, female turning toward only females or a mixture of all of it, destroying the image of God in man and woman together and replacing it with a hodgepodge of confusion. But even that's not enough. Now he seeks to disrupt the very image within each individual person. So increasingly, a man thinks he is a woman or a woman thinks she is a man, while others want to reject the very idea of either sex and embrace uh, and embrace therefore some numbing mixture of gender nonsense and force this upon children in the name of compassion even James didn't comprehend I don't believe what he was fully describing when he says here in chapter 3 verses 13 through 18 who is a wise person endued with knowledge among you Let that person show out of an orderly lifestyle the fruit of that orderly lifestyle in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envy moved by a demand for created order to be other than what God ordained, and 
And if you have strife in your hearts, as it now seems to be in all of our culture, don't glory in that. And don't willfully weave lies formed for the very purpose of battling against the truth, again, which is the only way such a rejection of reality can ever gain a platform, is to weave false lies and propaganda to support it. James goes on to say, This false wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, soulish, and demonic. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion. And then every evil work comes out of that confusion. But here is where we as God's people must press in more than ever. If we claim the wisdom we have is from God, then we must express that wisdom in meekness. Remember verse 13, meekness, not weakness. It's the very opposite of weak. To be meek is to have power to act, but to be able to keep that power under wise godly control. We do not fight fire with fire, as anger at such evil will will tempt us to do. We seek God's wisdom to know how to respond to chaotic disorder by exhibiting godly life and life-giving order instead. If we act in anger, we only affirm satanic disorder even more. So James says, For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and easy to be entreated. That means it's willing to listen and it responds wisely to what it hears. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's without wrangling and without hypocrisy. The fruit of this righteous way of responding is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're in a time now where it's very tempting to fight fire with fire. It's very tempting to want to push back against some of the evils that we're seeing. And that's why Romans 13 says, God has given the sword in the hands of uh, a police force to execute God's righteous judgment against evildoers. But what happens when some who bear the sword are are found to be untrustworthy? It's our responsibility, the church's responsibility, to manifest the kingdom of God in such a way as to call both sides to repentance. Not in self-righteous superiority, but with a clear-minded view of what's wrong on both sides. Every evil work comes out of confusion and disorder. Every godly work comes out of order. Out, Out from order, not out of order, out from order. God can move our lives into miracle flowing position when our lives begin to be in order. That's true whether it's referring to our private lives or to our public interaction. 
You cannot have divine order in your life if there's bitterness and unforgiveness towards your own family because of their disorder. And the same is true for our nation. We cannot manifest the life flow of goodness and truth if we are bitter and angry at those who are bitter and angry or those who are willfully trying to deform reality by imposing satanic disorder. And before we get our natural life in order, we must make sure our own inner life with Jesus is in order. You cannot overcome by mere willpower. In his presence and in your inner life with him, you will see clearly the origin of the problems in you, whatever they may be. Then you can go to the root of what causes those problems and begin to set them right with his grace. The correcting of your inner world will then set in motion the energy needed to correct your outer world. But you cannot reverse this. It must be done in order. Submit to God. Then you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. First you submit to God, then you resist. You don't resist first and then submit to God. Now, just some closing thoughts. As we enter into this ongoing and increasingly trying time of testing, where every precious thing in human life is being attacked by open displays of satanic disorder, it is more vital than ever that we keep our own world in divine order. Keep first things first. I taught this message as a young pastor who deeply loved his people. But my own inner world was not orderly. And anger in me against evil soon became an evil of its own. And I injured the very ones I wanted most to love and help. So again, the order is submit to God, then resist the devil. For trying to resist the devil apart from God will get you badly hurt and hurt others. Life dissipates without divine order. A river becomes a flood if it has no banks. It flows with life if it is restricted by order. The banks keep the water moving in helpful ways, else it will overflow in destructive ways. And I learned that the hard way in 1984. You're not going to listen to this message and just then be able to do it. Everything will then be all orderly and blessed and suddenly some disorder in you may show up that ruins it. You're not going to grow fast, but you are going to grow in this slowly and therefore more stably and surely way of ordering your emotions, your actions instead of reactions, and your responses instead of knee-jerk uh, blasting back at your enemies. If You can do this if, it, if you make it your consistent aim every day of your life to do it. In closing, let me just say this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And verse 40 says, so let all things be done in decency and in order. 
Order and peace in this context are the same thing. I know that there is a kind of order that is militaristic, Nazi-like, and oh yes, it's efficient, but it's certainly not godly, and it does not produce peace and doesn't come from peace. But in this context, you can't have peace without order, and if you have order, you will have peace. So, as Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God will cleanse us mostly, but there are certain aspects of this cleansing that he wants us to willfully do ourselves with his grace. You will know what part is God's and what part is yours as you spend time with him about the issues. Get a vision of what God wants and then you will be able to go after it clearly and with focused energy. Without a vision, the people run aimlessly till they crash and burn. Or more clearly, without a vision, the people wander aimlessly because they don't know what they're about, where their energies belong. Don't let the chaos of the current disorder around you, whether private or national or international, cause you to start wandering aimlessly until you crash and burn. God's not the author of this confusion. He has called us to peace, both to give it and to receive it. So in our closing moments together, I want to ask you to take this truth to heart first in your own private world and then you will be equipped and trustworthy in the eyes of the Lord to be a peacemaker in your larger world. You know, the word peacemaker in Greek would be better translated peace worker. Uh, both, both, both are right, but uh, a peacemaker, we think sometimes sadly of a peacemaker is an appeaser. That's not the idea. The reason I say a peace worker is one who works from an inner position of peace in his own heart to communicate with those who are not at peace with one another in order to bring about true, equitable unity of heart. Blessed are the peace workers, the ones who work to bring real peace, not the appeasers of evil and not the uh, ones who... uh, impose some outer control over others in order to bring cessation of conflict, like a police action. I mean, we speak of policemen as peacekeepers, uh, and that's not wrong, but any, any good policeman will tell you his job is to keep the peace from becoming out of control and violent. That's his job according to Romans 13 and according to the Constitution. But a godly policeman or a godly peacemaker 
is one who goes beyond just keeping things from exploding and seeks truly to create true unity of heart. I wish we had time to go into this more in detail here. Uh, This is demonstrated all through the Gospels as Jesus deals with Pharisees and the different kinds of Pharisees who were at odds with one another. The Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots. Uh, I mean, all these groups were at Samaritans. I can't dare not leave out the Samaritans who were bitterly hated and who bitterly hated Jews. And yet you see them all coming together in Christ. I mean, it's a big job. It's a hard job. We're about to find out how big and how difficult this job is, but we're also about to find out how much anointing and grace there is on any person who's willing to take up the cross and take up this task. So, Father, I pray for every man and woman in the sound of my voice who is willing to follow you into the depths of this in whatever way they are able to, to, to go. Help us be true peacemakers. Help us in the meekness of wisdom to bring about uh, transformation uh, by communicating truth and love. I pray for all of us, Father, myself included. In Jesus' name. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. We'll talk, Lord willing, next time. Bye-bye.